back. Um, we're going to go straight into videos again today. Um, first one is, is short and the other one is average length. We're going to um, cover two topics again today. Uh, the first one is, did the gospel writers intend to write history? Um, and the reason we're going into that is it, it doesn't really matter if something is preserved perfectly and is copied by scribes perfectly and is witnessed by eyewitnesses and was written in a short enough time if the intention of the author was never to write history. Because you could tick all those boxes and they could have written fiction and their intention was to write fiction. Or I don't know if I ever pronounced this right. Um, allegory or allegory. I don't know how to say it. Okay. So for example, Homer's Iliad, his intention was to write a kind of mythical account of things. Like obviously he added in some factual things, right? But you know, his he was he, he knew deep down he was kind of making things fanciful, right? So we need to know if the, the, the people who wrote the New Testament, if their intention was to write history, if that's the genre they were going for. Um, and then the second question, which I didn't write down, but if I remember correctly, was um, did they record history accurately? So was it their intention and did they accurately record history? All right. Remember to let me know if you can't see or hear online people. There are actually a good number of Christians that they are anti-intellectual and they are anti-scientific, but that is not the classic Christian position. Therefore, uh, I'm hearing the modern atheists uh, and I'm saying, yeah, I understand why you take that point of view because you've heard these other people, but that's not what we as Catholics believe and it's not actually the classic tradition. And I get irritated because I want to say to them, you guys are smart, okay? Why don't you do your homework a little bit better? If you're really interested in this debate, why don't you find out what we really believe and why don't you actually debate that rather than setting up these straw men and taking pot shots at the fundamentalists because that's real easy to do. So we've seen now that the gospel writers were able to write accurate history. The question now is, what was their intention? After all, it's one thing to be able to do something, but you may have an intention to do it in something entirely different, you see. So being able to do something is one thing, but wanting to do that is an entirely different matter. 
So what was the gospel writer's intention here? What did they intend to do when they wrote these works? Did they, did they want to write accurate history, or did they want to just write poetry or myth? What was their intention? Well, I think there were four good reasons to think, four good reasons to think that the gospel writers were, were not only able to write accurate history, but they also intended to write accurate history. We'll say four reasons for historical intent. Say it that way. Four reasons for thinking that these writers had a historical intent. Uh, the first reason that the, to think that these gospel writers intended to write accurate history is that two of the writers explicitly say so. That, that's exactly what they tell us what they're trying to do. Two gospel writers explicitly say that we're trying to write accurate history. This is huge. Okay. Who are these two writers? Well, Luke. For example, Luke says this in that, in that uh, passage I quoted to you earlier from Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You know, remember it said, It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you that you may know the truth. Okay, so Luke is saying, hey, I am trying to tell you the truth. I'm trying to tell you what really happened concerning the life of Jesus. So Luke explicitly says that he's trying to tell us to give us an accurate account of of the life of Jesus. In other words, he has historical intent. So this tells us a lot about the genre of the gospel, the style of writing it is, mythical genre, poetical genre, or in this case, historical genre, the type of work we're dealing with. And Luke is just explicitly saying, hey, this is a historical, this is a, a historical genre. Okay. So Luke tells us what his genre is. What about the other three Gospels? Well, we, we know that Matthew and Mark are very similar in style to Luke. They're, they're very similar. That's why we call those three in New Testament studies, we call those the synoptics, okay? Because they're very similar in the way they're laid out and the way they, the way they write. Now, they don't explicitly say what Luke says. However, since it's, it's a very similar writing, we should assume that they are the same genre as Luke. And Luke is telling us what he's doing. In other words, since Matthew and Mark resemble Luke and, the, and share the same style, we should think that they have the same intent. It's just, it's just common sense. So, that, so Luke, uh, the, the genre here is historical. That should go for Mark and Matthew as well because it's the same style of work uh, there. Now. What about John? You know, a lot, of, a lot of New Testament scholars today that are critical about the, the historicity of John, they, they pick on John. You know, John, well, he's got these advanced theological concepts, and he's got more of a spiritual gospel. He's not really trying to tell us history. So John gets picked on a lot by uh, New Testament critics as, as, as being not historical. Now, I think this criticism is extremely misguided, extremely misguided. Why? Well, for the, the best reason is, is that John 2 explicitly tells us what he's trying to do. He explicitly gives us his intent here. John also, he, it is Luke and John. These are the two gospel writers that explicitly tell us what they're trying to do. Now, we just looked at Luke. What does John say? Well, John says this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is 
true. So again, John says, I'm telling you the truth about Jesus, what really happened, okay? So there's just no good reason to think that, you know, yeah, of course, John does have some advanced theology going on in his gospel compared to the other three, but there's no reason to think that therefore he's not being historical here. John uh, tells us that he's being historical. Those two things can go together, you know, so we shouldn't think that John was just a spiritual work or anything like that. All right, so another reason to think that these writers had historical intent was their willingness to include embarrassing details. A willingness to include certain embarrassing details suggests historical intent. Again, you know, sometimes, sometimes historical intent can be seen in the very writing itself. This is because we, the writers were at least honest enough, the writers were honest enough to include embarrassing material. What do I mean by embarrassing material? Well, for example, material like John says, Jesus' own brother doesn't believe him. That, that's, that's kind of embarrassing when you're trying to promote Christ and you know, evangelize to say that Jesus' own brother didn't believe him. That's, that's a kind of an embarrassing detail. But John is an honest enough guy. He just includes it. He's, he, he just tells it like it is. But also John 6, 6 says that Jesus is deserted by many of his own followers. In John 6, it says that Jesus is deserted by his own followers. Again, another embarrassing detail when you're trying to promote Christ and you say a bunch of people just ditched him, okay? Another example, Matthew 11, 9 says, says that Jesus is called a drunkard, okay? You're trying to promote Jesus as God. Matthew says, well, some people thought he was a drunkard, okay? Another embarrassing detail. And also in Luke uh, chapter, 7, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 36, Luke says that Jesus hangs out with sinners and prostitutes, okay? <laughs> so this, these are kind of embarrassing details when you're talking about your God, that he's a drunkard, hangs out with prostitutes, you know? These are embarrassing details, in a sense, but they're in there. I mean, the, the, the writers were honest enough to include these things. These guys seem to be giving us the straight scoop here. If they were fudging the details, surely they'd want to fudge these. You know, you want to kind of get those out of there if you, if you were uh, really going to lie about this. So I think that in this, uh, when, when you include embarrassing details like this, it indicates a willingness that, that to, 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 be, to be honest and, and to tell the truth. So a willingness to include embarrassing details is another reason to think that these guys were telling the truth and that they had historical intent. All right, the third reason to think that the gospel writers had historical intent was they were highly motivated to. They were highly motivated to pass on the words and actions of Jesus. What Jesus said and did, whether, whether other people don't believe it or not, they believed it and it was really important to them to get it right and to teach it to others. They took that stuff very seriously. You know, I mean, the salvation of souls depends on it in their view. They want to get this right. As Richard Bauckham writes, the early Christian movement was interested in the genuinely past history of Jesus because they regarded it as religiously relevant. At the deepest level, it was for profoundly theological reasons, their understanding of God and salvation, that early Christians were concerned with faithful memory of the really past story of Jesus. So again, the point here is that given the author's theological motivations, they probably intended to accurately relay and transmit the true teachings and events of Jesus. Now, the fourth reason for thinking that they had historical intent 
is simply the fact that they had absolutely no good reason to lie. Nobody makes up myths or stories that's going to get them in trouble, get them put in jail, and possibly killed. Storytelling can be fun, writing fictional stories can be fun, and we all like to do that, but nobody likes to do that when it's going to get you in trouble, land you in jail, and so on. But in this case, they would have no good reason to make up fictional stories about Jesus when, when promoting Jesus in general is just going to get you killed, okay? So there's just no good reason to think that they would do that. So we have four good reasons now for thinking that the Gospel writers had historical intent. The first reason was two of them explicitly say so, that was Luke and John. The second reason was their willingness to include embarrassing details about the life of Jesus, kind of gives you a, a tip off into their overall orientation, a willingness to tell the truth as it is. The third reason was given their theological beliefs, they would have been highly motivated to accurately pass on these teachings. And the fourth reason was simply that there was no good reason at all to make up lies, myths, or stories when in fact those things can get you in a whole lot of trouble and possibly killed. You know, one of the things that impresses me too about the Christian story is that we don't have one gospel written by somebody that lived a hundred years after the time of Jesus. Uh, a gospel that lacks very little confirmation by archaeological evidence. Nope, we have four gospels all written within a generation or so of the time of Jesus all within the lifetime of eyewitnesses and people taught by eyewitnesses. That's very encouraging to me. And then these four Gospels also uh, are backed up with archaeological confirmation and other sources. How does that compare to the rest of the ancient world? Very, very well. Do you realize that to come anywhere close to that same record of, of, of witness and confirmation, even people like Julius Caesar and, and uh, Alexander the Great, they just barely meet the same threshold. And I find it interesting that there are some skeptics out there who will say, oh, the Gospels are not good enough, or you know, we, they don't give us enough information, or blah, blah, blah. Hey, listen, if you, if you raised the bar that high and consistently applied it to the, the whole of the ancient world, you'd have almost nothing left. There'd be almost no history to write about. We'd know a little bit about Caesar and Augustus and a little bit about Alexander, but just about everybody else would disappear. The New Testament early history is extremely early and well-documented and enjoys, as I said, external corroboration and archaeological confirmation. I think the key would be to recognize that the Gospels ought to be assessed on the basis of documentary evidence. So on historical grounds, in any courtroom, using legal criteria, historical reason would reach the conclusion that the four Gospels would be admissible in any courtroom and that the evidence that they present would be, again, these witnesses are innocent until proven guilty. What they're saying is true unless they could be overturned. You, what I find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts is this kind of restraint. They, they are restrained by what actually happened. And did the disciples look bad sometimes? They did. They made mistakes sometimes. The story is told truthfully, warts and all. Would it have been more impressive to have Jesus appear and be seen by Pontius Pilate, scare the bejeebers out of him? Yes, that would have been a great story, but that's not what happened. 
So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't say that. So now that we've seen that the gospel writers were able to write accurate history, they were intending to write accurate history, now we're going to ask the question, did they in fact get it right? Did they write accurate history? And how in the heck do we know? Well, I think there are five reasons to think that the gospel writers did in fact write accurate history. Five reasons. The first reason is that historiographical criteria, historiographical criteria indicates historical accuracy in key critical areas. If you'll remember from an earlier lecture, we talked about the criterion of embarrassment or the criterion of multiple attestation. These, these are the tools that uh, historians use to go through ancient texts, old historical texts, and pick out what is, in fact, historically accurate. And, of course, we can do this with the gospel text as well. And when we do that, we're going to see that important areas, uh, important parts of the gospels are, in fact, historically accurate. This point is huge. I can't, I can't emphasize enough to you the importance of being able to use these tools that historians do in fact use all the time. These historiographical criteria are going to be a big deal later on when we talk about the, the resurrection of Jesus and, and how we know the different parts of Jesus' life that do in fact uh, lead us to that conclusion. But right now, we're not going to go into all that right now. Right now I just want you to know that we can use these different criteria like embarrassment or multiple attestation to go through and pick out key elements in the Gospels that are in fact historically accurate. Just to give you an example, Daryl Bach in his book, Who is Jesus, says that by using these criteria, we can establish the historicity of things like Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, Jesus choosing 12 disciples, Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus' attitude towards the Sabbath, Jesus' announcing of the kingdom of God and the authority to perform exorcisms, Peter declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, Jesus cleansing the temple, the Last Supper, the examination by the Jewish leadership before his death, the examination by Pilate and the crucifixion, and finally the discovery of the empty tomb by his women followers. Bach argues we have good reason to think that these things are historically accurate in the Gospels. Okay, the next reason to think that the Gospel writers did in fact record accurate history is through archaeological findings. Archaeological findings confirms historical accuracy. So that's our second point. Archaeological evidence confirms historical accuracy. There are hundreds of archaeological findings that confirm gospel details. Let me just give you a few examples. In 1961, the discovery of the inscription of Pontius Pilate was the first corroboration outside of the Bible of the man who sentenced Christ. In November of 1990, the burial grounds of Caiaphas, the high priest, were discovered in a burial cave in South Jerusalem. This is the high priest who actually presided over the trial of Jesus. We now have found his family tomb. Archaeology has also discovered numerous coins that provide archaeological support for the existence of King Herod the Great 
and the other King Herods who succeeded him that are also mentioned in the Gospels. Another great example is the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Bethesda. This is where the Gospel of John says that Jesus cured a sick man. Now what's interesting about this one is that scholars, critical scholars for a long time, criticized the historicity of John because we've never found this Pool of Bethesda. John must not know what he's talking about. We don't, we've never seen this thing. You know, archaeological digs have never uncovered such a thing. John must be wrong. Maybe he was talking about a pool in a spiritual sense or whatever. But no, no, I mean that worked for a while, but guess what? Arche an archaeological dig in, in the 19th century found this pool of Bethesda. We found it. We found the thing. And guess what? There is a pool named Bethesda. It is exactly where John says it was, near the Sheep Gate, and it has five porches like John said it did. So this is a great example of where the Gospel of John got it historically right and all the critics got it wrong. Now when this happens, when we have a match between what the Gospels say and then what some uh, archaeological evidence turns up, we have what scholars call verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. It just means verification through other sources. In this case, what has been said in the Gospels has been corroborated by external evidence. In this case, of course, it would be archaeology. Arche archaeological evidence can corroborate some gospel details, and when we have that match, we have verisimilitude. Now, in speaking of this verisimilitude, Craig Evans writes, The New Testament Gospels and Acts exhibit a great amount of verisimilitude. If the New Testament Gospels were nothing more than fictions and fables about a man who never lived, one must wonder how it is they possess so much verisimilitude and why they talk so much about people we know lived and about so many things we know happened. So the point here is this. If the Gospels are just a bunch of made-up stories and fictions and fables, how come archaeological evidence keeps supporting everything they in fact say? That doesn't make any sense. So, no, the archaeological evidence suggests that the Gospels are talking about real people and real places, and it just ends up uh, supporting what they say. Now, a third reason to think that the Gospel writers did, in fact, write accurate history is through other Christian testimony. Other ancient Christian testimony corroborates certain Gospel details. We talked a little bit about that earlier when I talked about some of the, the Gospel material appearing in James and in Paul and so on. So, other New Testament epistles, they corroborate certain Gospel details. And moreover, works like the Didache and First Clement and Ignatius. These guys also independently confirm gospel details. So we have some multiple attestation, you could say, going on here with other Christian testimony. The fourth reason for, th for thinking that the Gospels did, in fact, write accurate history is other non-Christian ancient testimony. So people who were not Christians, yet living and writing at that time, confirm kind of a broad outline of Jesus' life that corroborates what the Gospels say about Jesus. Now, by far and away, the most important non-Christian testimony to Jesus is a work by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus, his full Roman name was Titus Flavius Josephus, and he lived from about the year 37 to 100 AD. He wrote an important book called The Antiquities of the Jews, the Antiquities of the Jews, where he tells the history of the Jewish world for a Roman audience. And the neat thing about this book is that this book gives us a lot of valuable insight into first century Judaism and the whole background of early Christianity. And what's interesting about this book is that Josephus mentions a lot of important people and events that appear in the Gospels. For example, he mentions Caiaphas the high priest, Annas the high priest, Pontius Pilate, King Herod and his descendants. He mentions that John the Baptist was killed by Herod, as it says in the Gospels. He mentions James, the brother of Jesus. And Josephus even summarizes the life of Jesus. It says in his book, The Antiquities, At this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one should call him a man. For he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following, both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading man among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. 
For he appeared to them on the third day, living again, just as the divine prophet had spoken of these and countless other wondrous things about him. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. Now you need to know there is some debate about this passage. The text here I have highlighted in yellow has been disputed because these texts seem so favorable to Jesus. It doesn't seem appropriate for a Jewish person like Josephus to say these sorts of things about Jesus. For example, if indeed one should call him a man, he was the Messiah, and that he appeared to them on the third day, living again, just as the divine prophets had spoken of these and countless other wondrous things about him. It just doesn't seem right that a Jewish person would say these things. And so for this reason, a lot of scholars, and correctly I think, have called these passages into question. Because these scholars think, and, and, and rightly so, that they appear to be Christian additions. They appear to be Christian interpolations. So what we need to do is to just take these passages out. The most reasonable thing here is to take these disputed passages out of the text. And when we do that, we can see now that the flow of thought is very clear. At this time there appeared Jesus a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following, both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So many scholars now think that this revised passage, this passage where we took out those disputed texts, this revised passage is reflective of what Josephus originally wrote. Now, if you want more reasons why we should think that this revised passage in Josephus is authentic, just look in your manual because I've given you there five good reasons from New Testament scholar John Meyer as to why this revised passage of Josephus is in fact authentic. And what we get here is a non-Christian summary of the life of Jesus, a Jesus who was a wise man, who did a lot of amazing things, even if he didn't agree that they were really in fact miracles. He had a big following, he got in trouble with Pilate, crucified, and the tribe of Christians are still uh, around to the day that Josephus is writing. So we do here have an authentic non-Christian testimony to the life of Jesus that gives you a broad outline of the life of Jesus that corroborates the gospel text. So, I mean, even from a negative point of view, it does confirm this, this image we have of Jesus that comes from the gospels. And we get that from ancient non-Christian testimony as well. Now, the fifth reason for thinking that the gospels did, in fact, write accurate history. The fifth reason is simply the lack of any Christian outcry. The Christians, the early Christians believed this stuff. It doesn't matter whether the skeptics did or not. The early Christians took this very seriously. This was their theological view. They think your eternal salvation depends on this information. If, if some people are writing and that writing is getting popular like the, other, like the early Gospels did, if that writing is getting popular and it's got the story messed up, these Christians are going to say something about it. There's going to be this huge outcry. Hey, you guys, you know that, that Gospel of Matthew, it's all wrong. You know, this is the real teaching of Jesus and so on. But there isn't any early Christian outcry like that. There were plenty of people around that were, that were ready, willing, and able to correct any corruptions, but there is no, there is no such uh, correction that we find in the early Christian documents. There's, just, there's simply no record of such, clowner, of such uh, counterclaims, which indicates to us that they must have gone along with the mainstream here of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and therefore we should think that they did, in fact, write accurate history. So we have five good reasons now for thinking that the gospel writers did, in fact, write accurate history. The first reason is the historiographical criteria. This is a huge point. I, I can't emphasize the importance of this one enough. We're going to get more into that in a later lecture. The archaeological evidence supports gospel details. Other ancient Christian testimony corroborates gospel details. Other ancient non-Christian testimony, people like Josephus and Tacitus, they support gospel details. And you can, even from these guys, even from just the non-Christian 
evidence alone, you can draw a general outline of Jesus' life. And the fifth reason is there just is no Christian counterclaim. There's no Christian outcry saying, hey, no, wait, the, God, the Matthew, that's not right. You know, this is the real story. There is no such counterclaim like that. All these reasons come together and suggest to us in a very strong way that the gospel writers did in fact write accurate history. It's almost never possible to uh, corroborate every last detail of uh, some ancient historical document. Again, it comes back to verisimilitude, restraint, and credibility. So are the stories composed to, to, for, to serve as some kind of expectation or agenda? No. They're composed because those are the things Jesus said, those are the things that happened, and sure it would have been nice if some other things had happened, but that's not what happened. The first century gospel writers tell it like it is. They're truthful. Okay, so uh, we're going to launch straight into questions. Um, and you can, if you feel you have uh, information or facts that could uh, answer these questions that he didn't mention, you can go ahead and say that if you want to reach back and draw from other lectures that we've listened to or your own research, that's fine too, or even just your own logic. Um, okay, so first question, why is it important to know whether or not the gospel writers intended to record history? Why is it important to know their intention as to whether they wanted to write history or not? I guess so that we can back down any statements that, oh, well, it, it was just written by man and it's not true. Okay. Anyone else want to add? I mentioned something in between the two videos. There was another answer to this question. Jack is staring out the window, hoping for inspiration. <laughs> yeah, the answer's right out there. <laughs> no. But wouldn't it just like affect the content and the validity of how we took it? Yeah, but why? Because they might, I don't know, they wouldn't have felt the urgency to, I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> What other kind of writings do people do besides historical? Fiction. Okay. Poetry. Poetry. Mythology. Mythology. Elements. Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, why is it important to know the intention of the gospel writers to write history? To show that it is indeed nonfiction. Yes. Because they're, yeah, go ahead. Oh. Um, also, they wouldn't write the same fiction story because that's plagiarism. Yeah. <laughs> that's stealing. You'd know about but, that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if it's fiction or if it's nonfiction, <clears throat> there can be more than one account and it'd be you know, not plagiarism. It would defeat the purpose if like, all of them were like, we're going to. We're going to write the same yeah. fiction story. Are you ready? Go. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's important because there are many critics today that will say that the Jesus stories are just stories, you know, they're just made up things or 
embellished historical details, right? Like Homer's Iliad that took some facts that were true, but then wove it into this really beautiful poem story thing, you know? Um, and so we need to be able to show them that the, the writers had the intention of writing history. They didn't want to write poetry or metaphors or whatever. They wanted to record history, right? And then their follow-up would probably be, okay, but I mean, you can have the intention to write history, but that doesn't mean that you did write history, right? Um, so before we go down that road, easy question. Did the gospel writers intend to write history? Does anyone think no? If you do think no, I would refer you to course one. Please complete course one through to, 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 to today over again before next week. <laughs> All right. Um, so how do we know it was their intention? There are multiple answers to this. You don't have to give all of them. How do we know it was their intention to write history? Well, there were two, the, two writers that actually stated it. That was Luke and John. Yes, correct. And I can go on. I wrote notes. No, 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 no. Wait, just one at a time. I'll come back to you if everyone keeps quiet. Yes, I included. Oh, sorry. sorry. I'm so sorry. I just. You need to speak loud. Yeah, I think yeah, the so mic loud. hears you. That's oh, why people always speak like, over you. I didn't know the embarrassing details. Oh. Yes. Is that what you were going to say, Emily? Yeah. Including embarrassing details. Just <laughs> oh my gosh, I will not die about it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can. You're only allowed to read one, though. Okay. Uh, they were highly motivated to record the words and actions of Jesus because they regarded it as religiously relevant. Could everyone hear that? Okay. Yes. They were highly motivated to record accurately what Jesus said and did because it was their religion and they wanted to follow it. And so they wanted to know what did he say? What does he expect? It was important for them to record that stuff accurately. There's two more. Well, according to the video, there was one more, but I've added a fourth one from my own brain. The last one that he said is a very, very important criteria that we can use as proof that they wanted to record accurate history. They were all eyewitnesses and that it was recorded within the same generation. No. I mean, we're talking about intention. Okay. Like, so repeat the so how do we know? Yes, how do we know it was their intention? I still don't know. <laughs> Cheating. <laughs> they didn't have a good reason to lie. <laughs> yeah. And and what would be a, a good a good follow-up? That's using your own brain. <laughs> that they died for that oh, yeah. truth, right? <laughs> so if you're gonna make up a Go if on. you're gonna make up a story at least make up one that's not going to get you killed, right? The only reason why you would write something, state its history, 
and fact and truth and then not change your story and be willing to die for it is if you were 100% convinced it was true, right? I don't know one author alive today that wrote a fictional book that if someone held a gun to their head and say, confess that it's just a fictional story, wouldn't go, of course, of course it's a fictional story, you know? So the fact that so many Christians were willing to die, not only then, but still up to today for that same truth shows that they're, that at the very minimum, they believe it to be true. Now you can believe something to be true, but that doesn't make it true. Okay. So, but we're not trying to prove that it is true. We're trying to prove their intention was to record history. And it was their intention because they show by their actions that they believe it to be true and they state it's their intention to record. Okay. But that now leads us to the second point is did they record accurate history? Because it's okay to have a good intention to do so, but that doesn't mean you're able. I could say right now, I want to write a book on the history of China and I could, without looking at Google, right now write everything I can from my brain remember about China. And I may believe it's true, but you know what? I may have gotten that information from a movie I thought was historical, but it was actually a lot of fiction and they embellished facts, but I thought it was facts. So I just wrote it down, you know? So we've established their intention was correct, but now we need to prove that they did record history accurately. Okay. So what are five reasons we have to believe the gospel writers did record accurate history? Archaeological finds. Mm-hmm. Josephus. He wrote, there's like other non-Christian yep. things that. Yeah, other out, external sources. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. correct. Okay. Lack of outcry from Christians. Yes. I hope that one made sense to everyone. But the point is that, you know, there were enough people that heard about Jesus, listened to his teachings and were eyewitnesses and were disciples that if anyone, even with good intention, had written down a record that was incorrect, that someone would have been like, hey, no, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And just in case anyone says, well, maybe they did and we just don't know about it. That's highly unlikely because I would say, if I remember correctly, probably in after the first hundred years, um, uh, after Jesus died, we already have records of people starting to dispute like offcuts of Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Um, we also have Paul in his writings, even on the minute details, right? When people already right then, even before the gospels were written, we're starting to believe a gospel that wasn't true. He was like, no, that's not the gospel. Bring it back, you know? So, um, but there is no record of anyone specifically about the gospels, the story of Jesus saying, no, that's not what happened. That's not true, right? Okay. So um, the fact that later on, we have people that make those, those huge fights. We have a sect saying, oh, this is the truth. And another saying, this is the truth. And we have records of that today, thousands of years later, but we have nothing about the gospels shows us that the Christians then all accepted that what they read was the truth. Okay. There's some more. 
Well, when they did that, um, Go ahead. The, the historical criteria that they use yes. shows that it's accurate. Anyone remember what the historical criteria are? That was like from session two. There were three things that we used um, to establish whether a document is historically reliable. Donna's busy cheating. <laughs> it's fine. You can look back. I'm just, I'm calling it cheating, but it's not cheating. Was embarrassing facts one of them? Yes. Yeah. Principle of embarrassment. Multiple attestations. Multiple attestations. Everyone always forgets this one. Yeah. Principle of coherence. Yeah. So does it make sense? Is it logical? Do outside sources corroborate what they're saying? Um, Alyssa and Jamichael, do you remember anything else? One of the five? It's fine if you don't. Sorry, I, we missed that. Alyssa just had to leave for practice. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so the only one, and it's very similar to what Ashley said, she said outside sources and so the last point he made was inside sources. So the fact that Paul, um, James, people like that wrote um, accounts that verify and, and are coherent with the gospels, they didn't contradict in any way, is another way that we can prove that they're, they're historically, um, historically accurate. So you can also go, there's, we're kind of doing a broad overview of everything, but there are literally books written for every session that we've done. There will be books that will go into just documents and give you a thick volume like this that you can go through and just proof for that. There, there's books written on just archaeological evidence to support the gospel. So if any of those like interest you, you know, go do your research and, and buy some more books. And just so that you know, there are also going to be a thousand books that contradict everything you find. So there will be someone who writes a book on why archaeology doesn't verify the gospel. Doesn't mean that they're right, but I just want you to be aware that there are people that go out of their way to disprove it. It's their like life goal. Um, but it's up to you to use the brain that God gave you to look at what they're saying compared to what the opposite side of the argument is saying do outside research yourself um, and see who's telling the truth and and eliminate their worldview from the equation by doing your own research and then come to your own logical conclusion. Um, I will say that the more time passes, the more the things in the Bible are verified by history, archaeology. Um, like we were speaking about the pilot stone a while back that for a long time, people didn't believe Pilate was a real character, which disproved the whole trial of Jesus. Um, and uh, like he mentioned the pool of Bethesda that they're like, oh, it wasn't a real place. How do we know that the whole gospel isn't metaphorical? So, and now they've discovered it. So over time, more and more, we seem to be finding things that verify the gospel. And uh, that gives me hope. So if there's ever a, a piece of information that's not verified, right? So I don't know if no one can find any evidence of John the Baptist ever have, having lived. I've, there's so much evidence already to support the gospel that as long as there's no counter evidence, there's no reason to disbelieve it, right? The fact is, it is a story that 
happened 2000 years ago. And so you're not going to have evidence for every single thing that was recorded, especially because, you know, it accounted the lives of a lot of people who were nobodies. And we know from history that historians never wrote about nobodies. The fact that people wrote about Jesus proves that they thought he was somebody. Um, and the people who didn't think he was somebody, even mentioning his name is huge because they would only write about important people, kings and rulers and stuff like that. Okay. Um, that's actually all I have for this week. Are there any questions or comments? Okay. Um, we are speeding through the courses, so I can see it coming to an end in the next few weeks. I, I want to prepare you in advance. I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to do this. I really do want to do it. So maybe I should emotionally prepare you. I am thinking that for the last, <laughs> Ashley's already sighing and she doesn't even know what I'm going to say. <laughs> what am I going to say, Ashley? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, build up. Like <laughs> I'm thinking that for the last session we have, um, there won't be any like video but I'm thinking of have like a, I don't know what to call it, but a on the spot mock fake conversation with the skeptic. So I don't know if I will do it and I don't know how I will do it, but I was thinking of maybe saying, okay, well, everyone, like the previous week saying to everyone, um, you have to pick two questions out of everything that we've done, right? So imagine yourself as a skeptic, pick two questions um, and when I, let's say I call on Steven and Donna, right. Then they're going to role play. So one will be the Christian, one will be the skeptic and whatever questions you've prepared when you're the skeptic, you'll ask the other person. And then you will obviously have to have gone over the facts so that when you're asked whatever two random questions out of everything we've gone through, you can speak to that. And then I highly encourage the skeptics to counter, you know, be, be mean and aggressive and say whatever you think a skeptic would say at that point. Um, no one must get their feelings hurt though. Let's just pretend. <laughs> um, and then as well, I don't know if it'll be the same day, hopefully, but I, I, I have a surprise on that day. I'm not gonna tell you what it is. But I'm telling you that there's actually going to be probably two surprises on that day, just in case you're like, well, I'm definitely skipping that Saturday, so I don't have to do the question answer thing. <laughs> so <laughs> there'll be two surprises. And uh, one, well, I don't even know if I should give you a hint. One will be a gift. And I'm not telling you what the other one is. So you will get something for your effort. And the other one is just cool, but I won't tell you what it is yet. <laughs> but you'll want to come on that day. So don't avoid it because you're scared of questions. And so here's the thing. If, if, if this already makes you nervous and you're like, oh my word, this is the worst thing ever. I need to join another group. Very quick. I know it may seem silly and it may make you uncomfortable to do it. But I think it's better for you to practice your first time having these conversations here 
you know, then the first time you ever have to speak about it, you're actually speaking to an atheist or a skeptic or whatever, you know, because here you can make a mistake and who cares? You're not ruining anyone's faith. You know, we can give you feedback. We can guide you right. You know, whatever your fake skeptics is to you is fake. You know, they don't really think you're stupid or whatever. <laughs> so I, I know it'll be awkward and uncomfortable, just like mock interviews. I don't know if anyone's done a mock interview to prepare them for a real interview. It's terrible and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable, but it is really good for you. It's really good for you. So I just want to warn you that it's coming up at some point. I don't know when, because I, I don't know how many sessions we'll have left, but before the end of the year for sure. So uh, prepare yourself and you might want to start taking notes if you're not a note taker <laughs> or, uh, you know, go through some of the previous sessions on like times five speed or something. Or buy yourself a book. <laughs> I am trying to, I'm not always successful, but I am trying to repeat things that you've heard over and over from previous sessions. So hopefully by the time we get to that, it won't be much of a study for you because we will have said the same thing so many times that most of the stuff should just come to your memory. Um, and I will do a, either on the day or the week before, I will do a summary to say, this is where we started and this is the logical path that we followed to get to the end. So hopefully that will be a quick like refresher for you as well. I probably, I probably shouldn't do it on the day because that'll be cheating. And then those of you with good short-term memory will have an advantage. <laughs> okay. Anyone want to just be honest and tell me right now you're not going to come that Saturday? So save me some money on, on your gifts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, let's do prayers. Cool. Um... Helene, will you close us in prayer? If you mind. If you don't, if you don't mind. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together and learn how to defend our faith and hopefully make disciples as you have commanded us to do. And we thank you for the lives of Ashley, Cassandra, Donna, and I forget who else. <laughs> Jack, that's right. Um, that you guys had another year to live, um, which is a blessing. And I pray that you guys will have fortunate years to come. Um, we just ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you.